Um, I think there's plenty of just beautiful intention and chaos leading into uh, what we want to discuss on this podcast. So you want to introduce that a little bit? Indeed. So this is uh, season three, Kali, of the Origins podcast. And this week we have a the title here. Holding the reins of intention while riding the stallions of the stallion of chaos. So what we want to talk about is how do you build in and organize intention? Because intention sets up organization and routines. But how do you allow chaos to still exist in its wildness and all of the nuances of the universe? that have a voice that are always speaking to us. How do you keep one ear on that while you're keeping one ear on, on intention and observation and making sure that what we choose to do as mentors is coming from that place of like wholly immersed in the learning process as a participant for all of the people that we are engaged with. And so I, I think about the environments that we've been in in the past where it looks to other teachers, looks to other adults, like there is no order. The idea of play and free play comes to mind. And we've talked about this uh, a little bit in the, in the, the free play episode from uh, season one, but chaos is not by itself a bad thing and intention and organization is not the only answer, right? That, that that how do we keep a balance between that so that that we are organized to a point that doesn't actually cross the line of stifling those moments of serendipity, those moments of surprise, those moments of that we could never have predicted were going to happen, but when it happens, you say, "Oh, now we do this." take all my planning that had gone into this before and set that aside. You don't have to throw, throw out the planning. You set it aside for a later time when that planning makes sense to come back to. And you say, we are going to completely, completely intentionally engage in whatever this new thing that we could never have planned that has happened. And we're going to maximize the learning experience out of this moment. Uh, that we have as a gift. And that's going to be real tough. It's extremely tough in a society that proclaims to have secularized itself. I'm just (laughs) going to be blatantly honest in all of this. Um, And this doesn't mean that I'm vouching for some sort of flat monochromatic sort of (laughs) monotheism. Uh, such as some Judeo-Christian, you know, tradition that also from a different end of the spectrum has completely forgotten the beauty of chaos to the point that it eradicated it all in its own mythology as in that is bad and that will be pushed away from this world into the bowels of hell. And so what you really need is an ongoing cosmology and mythology that venerates chaos. 
<laughs> right. And, and at the risk of sounding insane, but as also hoping that I do sound insane because sanity is, nowadays is the lack of any sort of common sense. <laughs> you have to recognize a figure such as Coyote uh-huh. uh, or the many trickster characters that children readily recognize and love and adore. You know, you have Rabbit, you have the Raven. And when these characters appear in stories, what they're coming to introduce and beckon is a celebration of chance and chaos. Right. The kids love it. Oh my gosh. Everything's seemingly normal. And then along comes Coyote and really fucks things up. Oh my goodness. That's just tremendous. And yet this faulty sense of hubris begins to emerge within us as adults in which we try to unsuccessfully control everything and eradicate chaos from our lives. And when it does come in, it comes in with a fury and it cannot be withheld but it's not savored and enjoyed for its quality of presenting that unexpected reality that will appear again and again and again. And there's nothing better for a moment of learning than for that type of coyote energy to enter into the classroom. If you know how to tame the wildness. Right. Yeah, I mean, from two angles, right? Like, so the wildness is presenting something in the form of novelty that you can work with if you have an eye and you have a muscle of creativity for how to go with the flow for something like that. But beyond that, whether it's a positive sort of chaotic moment or, you know, moment of serendipity or coincidence or whether it is a disruptive one those are the moments that our learners are going to remember more than anything else we can either embrace those moments and move with it and say oh well mm. the coyote energy is here now <laughs> this is how we're going to ride this wild stallion or you can resist it and you can fight against it and you can try to slay it uh, and you never will, even if you imprison it, it's only temporary. And, right. and what you've done more often than not is you've caused some psychological damage in both yourself and your students <laughs> when you do that, because yeah. no adult is better for the adult temper tantrum blow up that they <laughs> exhibit, you know, <laughs> um, right. and no, no learners are better for that temper tantrum blow up either. And I'm not saying that there aren't times for some court of theater, you know, when you want to impress upon someone, but uh, you can go into a rage and be 
uh, eloquent in your rage. But that's a different thing than having a routine of, I said, walk, don't run, ah, don't touch that <laughs> thing, don't. You know, it's like what we were talking about last, last week with like, don't eat the snow. Um, <laughs> and and I see that that reaction is is something that I see all the time, where it's like teachers are just fighting. They're fighting nature because nature is going to throw something at you today that you weren't expecting and you could never have planned for. And I love what you said, where it's the problem is, is that our culture doesn't venerate chaos yeah. as something that is divine. Yeah. That is innately attached to the cosmos and something that we should be grateful for mm -hmm. and celebrate. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, if I'm really going to be honest, it's taken quite a bit of time to get to this point. Uh, I've said it in, in previous podcasts. Uh, and I think it's important to go over that terrain because when some of the things that we're talking about, may resonate but you're like how do i get to that point like it takes time <laughs> yeah, it um it you does. know when when you and i met i believed in dualities good and evil and uh -huh. chaos is a nice i would say 101 out of duality in that mm -hmm can't really argue if that was actually bad or if that was good. It <laughs> tends to be allotted with the bad, but upon just a sliver more of reflection, you can say how that was necessary and something good came out of it. Yeah. Therefore, it's not so easily dismissed. I want to share something. Uh, that came up this week in this incredible book, um, Beneath the Wheel. So I've dug into it a little bit more. Uh, chapter one, um, when Herman Hess writes Siddhartha, that was like 20, 25 years ago that I was like, I, I really enjoy this story. Um, uh -huh. But and 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 so it's it's this really weird like JD Salinger type of like I enjoyed that way back in the day, except that he actually has other material. Um, uh, you know, JD Salinger has you know has has some stuff, but it, it what he put out was very limited, and I was unfamiliar with beneath the wheel listen to this in light of what we're talking about today so in young beings there is something wild ungovernable uncultured which first has to be tamed it is like a dangerous flame that has to be controlled or it will destroy Natural man is unpredictable, opaque, dangerous, like a torrent cascading out of uncharted mountains. At the start, his soul is a jungle without paths or order. And like a jungle, 
it must first be cleared and its growth thwarted. Thus, it is the school's task to subdue and control man with force. (laughs) Make him a useful member of society to kindle those qualities in him whose development will bring him to triumphant completion. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I mean, you can see that that's, no matter how we got here, that, that is the intent of a public education, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with varying success and, and oddly, a lot of the dialogue and discussion around like something like the achievement gap is how well are you adhering to that Mm -hmm. system that you just described? Mm -hmm. And I can see how there's truth in that too. If the role of the educator is to tame that wildness into a beautiful avenue there's truth in that i mean um you know you take a musical instrument um you can't just celebrate chaos of the plucking of the string you have to take all of that energy and be able to channel it into a way of being um you know a beautiful new sound but that same passage and this is like the tragedy of anything like, you know, the, the Quran or, or, or scriptures or you name it is that you take this same text and it could vouch for the elimination of all wildness and spontaneity and chaos within youth. And it's all in how it's read. Yeah. And that's the whole nature of this podcast but this podcast is is like well what forms do you bring in to play Mm -hmm. with and to play Mm -hmm. against and to play inside of without destroying those qualities always keeping one foot in the village one foot out of the village right to bring in a a, the story of half boy um, that we haven't really talked about on this podcast but um but look up Michael Mead and the story of Halfway and, and go to town. I mean, it's, that's so often that is my primary job within the context of working in and amongst a public institution. Okay, but I want to continue to chart timelines of how you came to a realization or I came to a realization and and encourage that point in which you're like, you, you now realize that's your job. I don't know when I do, but go back and talk, you know, cause you got cut off right in the beginning of trying to say what you were saying in, in terms of, I mean, you were, you were throwing a bone out to our listeners you know, and saying, okay, I understand that this is a process and this is not where I was coming from. Go back and talk through some of the, yeah, the, that. And I, and, I, and I wanted to do that because I can actually do it not only from um, like a cosmological perspective, having grown up as, a, you know, a, the son of a missionary 
and and with a cosmological view of good versus evil in a very right, dualistic right. form but but that that sort of thing and this is so much of like my voyage to china and i've talked about that before which was getting away from judeo christianity at a societal level and recognizing that there's something else i can see that even in my approach right out of a rock band when i became an english teacher my go-to and i and i would not have been able to articulate it at the time but my go-to was the same watered down sort of judeo-christian structure <laughs> versus evil right. and really laying down the template for the 10 commandments that wouldn't take place in my classroom, for example. Right. 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 And it's within that context that you and I met where I had to deal with my own skepticism of what was possible beyond this simple dualistic framework. And if I were to find inklings of its beginning to, you know, unravel, it would be my, my move out of, you know, a class that was going to differentiate between what, how to use the verb to be versus the verb to do and the, and to have in a present past future sort of tense and really get everybody to understand the six pronouns, you know, I, you, third person, he, she, we, they, five, you know, um, all of that world which was so military and so uh -huh. cold cut. And then uh, that, that was like one era of my teaching. And then the next one, and it's hard to see exactly how I got there, but it was an approach that said, you know what? No. Language acquisition does not happen in this way. It happens with a trust in creating the immersion experience for learning to happen in its own chaotic way within the restraints of this one story to where mm. I'm going to present a story and I'm not exactly sure what everybody will learn, but I know you will learn. And it's a letting go of the reins of control while still having a certain reign of control, but welcoming in chaos and chance and possibility and spontaneity into the room. You cannot right. have that in a structure of today we're going to address I am, you are, he is, we are, they are. And everybody's going to learn that. And in its negative form, it's I am not, you are not, blah, blah, blah. Uh -huh. But instead, what we're going to do is today we're going to tell the story of three languages. Right. <laughs> There's something completely different that happens in the room. And then if we continued along that journey, you know, we 
began to experience a lot of different things when when science wasn't this predictable experiment in which you know a mento was tossed inside of a coca-cola to create you know some <laughs> sort of evaporation right uh, but instead it was there is a dead raccoon on the side of the road and i know nothing about dealing with a dead raccoon but we're going to figure this thing out together mm -hmm. <laughs> and those are examples that I find are, uh, you know, uh, uh, an Old Testament versus New Testament approach to education in which chaos is welcomed. Yeah. I mean, we keep talking about, okay, free play or holistic education or whatever, whatever it is that we're positing at, at, at any moment is not devoid of form. Right, it's not devoid of some container. It's just that that container is permeable in so many different ways than what a conventional system allows. Mm -hmm. um, when you and I were going to school, I'm guessing that it was similar for you, but when I was in high school, science was this thing that was figured out and I didn't know anything about it. And so the textbook was unquestionable, like whatever the textbook said, it was more knowledge than I had. So who am I to be a skeptic of, of the textbook, right? And right. now we're kind of living in a society where technological mm. advances have so rapidly increased to the point that so much science is being done on, say, the molecular level to where... You know, what was sold to people even during COVID was you can't question what these people are saying in the name of science because you couldn't possibly do the work of science on the level with you don't have access to the technology. You can't go do your own experiments. You can't do this. You just have to take, you know, whatever the mainstream narrative is at, at face value and try to maybe, maybe just dice it up to like, well, how many scientists are on this side of the narrative versus the other side of the narrative? Right. And so it, when no one has access anymore to their own common sense, because that's being hijacked by whatever narrative is being sold to them through a marketing and propaganda engine. And we've lived in that. We've grew up in, in that engine. I'm not saying that anything that happened in the last three years is different than anything that happened in the last 20 years, but, um, but the way that people access that is different. And so there is still a form, right? Mm -hmm. And, and now the form that gets criticism so much is social media, social media, that social media, that blah, 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 but that's still a form. And the chaos is when something unexpected comes along and then messes with that. And, and, and we're at a, we're at a place where the next level of chaos is likely to be the next, the next version of the technology, right. That comes in and, you know, like the way that TikTok has kind of come in and 
and, and it's pushing aside the Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all those users are like, oh, you know, like we just can't compete with Snap, with TikTok. Ah, it's just so great. And like, well, something else will come back, come in <laughs> or uh-huh. there may be like some like solar flare that just knocks all this stuff out. And then you're at this point of saying, well, what do we do now? Right. And when things get so locked down, when the forms get so locked down and unflexible and the people don't really have a way to work around that and to allow chaos in, what's happening is that there's a, a concretizing of that form. And it means that to penetrate that, the event will have to be that much more severe. Yeah. And so you have this culturally, we're talking about you can hear this all over there where you're talking about cataclysms and you're talking about censorship, right? (laughs) Because on some level, the only way people see out of the censorship and the box, the very like well-constructed, well-defined, well-articulated box is by having some event just come and annihilate the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just an extreme situation of where we're at. I mean, we always have forms that we're working with, whether it's a Judeo-Christian upbringing that we're working against, uh, whether it's a Confucianist upbringing, like, you know, with many of the people that you went in and, you know, you you guys would go attend Confucius class, right? Right. And, And you would see how a whole culture evolved daily around those ideas versus uh, versus other ideas. So part of what we want to talk about this in this podcast is how do you how do you move past ideological activism because that's like a that I think is kind of like empty calories. It's kind of like the candy, right? Where it's just like it burns burns bright but burns out really quick, right? Like well, what do you do when you're done? What do you do when you're when you have no more friends because you've isolated everyone because your ideologies don't have room for a conversation that's bigger than you? And from a holistic education perspective, we are always trying to entertain all of the narratives, right? Right. So that what develops out of that is each person's unique ability to critically think in the world. And so when we have these forms that we're working with at the extreme level, we can call them a stereotype, but the reason stereotypes exist is because there's enough of a, of a reliable pattern there that people have then, you know, become really quick to make a lot of assumptions and to create a box, but that's also what humans do. I mean, we, we try to recognize patterns in the most efficient way that we can possible to be able to negotiate the world that we're in, in a clean and efficient way, you know, and, and albeit to our satisfaction, that, that's what's happening. And so we can't expect uh, stereotypes to go away. We can't expect ideologies to go away. In fact, the more we isolate ourselves into uh, our own little corners of the universe, the more solid uh, those ideologies become. And the more solid those ideologies become, the less likely they are to be able to entertain uh, coyote and chaos and the trickster. And that's why you see humor is one of the first places in our culture to be attacked and to, to be isolated and say, no, we don't allow this humor anymore because it's pointing out 
this contradiction that we all know exists, but we don't want to face. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, I mean, I want to right now I've got a nine year old that has a sense of humor that, that, that even I find dangerous. Um, <laughs> and, and, and what I'm realizing more and more so is that he, right. A lot of the friction that's taking place in school is because it has an outlet at home that can channel and redirect and contain and bounce back and Mm -hmm. play with. But what it, what is being met with at school is chastisement and silencing which ironically is then ending up in, you know, the conversations that I have with the school are like, he didn't speak all day. Do you know why? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, why would you, if you're, if you're waiting to say something humorous and you know, you're just going to be chastised for saying something. Or, or or you're not being met with humor. Yeah. Right. right. Um, you know what? One thing that uh, took place that really, you know, when I had this hunch that that might be going on, I was always was going to stay home last week by himself, and and so I said, hey, you know, you you got two hours. I want you to spend about thirty minutes doing something in Chinese, another thirty minutes in Spanish, and then I want you to do some writing. Um, and then you can do whatever you want <laughs> with the last 30 minutes. But the writing, I want you to just find something that you'd like to write about. And he's like, anything I want? And I'm like, yeah. It's like, and he's like, okay, cool. All right, guys, see you later. I said, well, the only thing about the writing is that you have to write in Chinese. He's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm just just kidding. <laughs> right. And that just propelled him into like, that was so funny. And, and because he, he's really struggling with writing, like he felt relieved, right. The, the humor came in to say, actually, I'm not asking a mountain out of you. <laughs> you're going to ask, <laughs> you're going to do something in your first language, not in your third language. Um, so just have fun with it, you know? And he loved that so much. And then, you know, a a couple of days later, I asked like, hey, you know, um, quick question. Um, Is your teacher funny? (laughs) He's like, no, come on, man. Like, like everybody's a little bit. No, I've never laughed with my teacher. that's a lot of wasted time. Like, and I've been in the classroom, right? Like I've been around this person that just not funny. Uh And not everybody has to be funny, but if you're somebody that thrives on humor and you're with somebody 80% of the day, that's not funny. Um, it's going to be really tricky for that relationship to jive. Well, let's take that a step further is that finally after years uh, and years and years of, you know, you know, some knowledge and intention being around 
developing an understanding of psychology, uh, we know how therapeutic smiling is. Right. And we talk about that in social emotional learning classes, right? That it's, it takes less muscles in your face to smile than it does to frown, right? Yeah. Like those kind of things. Humans adore humor. They want to be happy. We, we, we want contentment. Why would we subject our children in their formative years to people who don't have a sense of humor? That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's just like, look, if you're a person who has lost your sense of humor, maybe you never had a sense of humor. Maybe you don't understand what humor is. And so socially you're, you're ineffective in this, in this way. Um, you probably shouldn't be teaching and we should probably shouldn't be hiring just anyone off the street who doesn't know how to make somebody else smile. Oh yeah. Uh, but that's not that. And about a slew of other slew of other things are not considered at the time of hiring. And we but know they're that. not, but, but I don't think that they're even considered often from a, from a place of self-reflection. So if we have any teachers listening to the, this podcast, ask yourself, like, you, you know, you know, like, how often do you make students laugh? How right. often do you make students smile? And I don't mean giving students praise for things that are not praiseworthy. That's another line of bullshit that we're not going to get into tonight. That's happening rampantly where we're just like, I just want everyone to feel good. So I'm going to give them praise even when they fucking don't deserve it. Uh, that's not that's not a replacement that that is a whole other thing so let let, let, we'll we'll talk about that another time but i i like i like this idea of self-reflection how many times have you made your kids laugh like you just have to because what happens when humor isn't a key into the keyhole of the heart. Um, It's chastisement. It's orders. It's commanding. Do this. Right. It's it's compulsory and coercive. Yes. Yes. And the reason in all of this, like the reason we're talking about, like just having a sense of humor is because going back to what I was sharing uh, in the beginning, I always thought that it was interesting that the God I had been presented didn't really seem to be funny. (laughs) And I I actually think that God is very funny now, but (laughs) not the God that I was presented with. The God that I was presented with was wrathful, uh, forgiving depending on the day or the era, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but definitely not funny. And I remember there's only probably few places in the world that would do such a thing as show all of the Jesus films in one week, but Costa Rica is <laughs> one of them. <laughs> and, and, and people actually watch them all and they talk about them. And I I noticed in all of these films, there was this one scene that I really loved, and I don't know which one it was, but it really stood out to me. And it was this moment in which Jesus, as presented in this movie, 
was thirsty and his disciples came up to the well and they were drinking and um he asked one of them you want some water and and they said yes and he said well come here and as the disciple approached <laughs> he just grabbed a bunch of water and splashed him in the face <laughs> and this boisterous laughter erupted and i was like Ah, that's the Jesus that I want to believe in. <laughs> okay. So, wow. Um, talk about just fucking around with people for a little bit. It's such a human quality. Of course. And, and, and what the quality that we're depicting is cosmologically not present in our society that has eradicated the possibility of a coyote figure coming in and saying, it's okay to just fuck around with things a little bit. And it actually adds to the beauty and the intensity of the moment. It doesn't strip it from it. It adds to it because what we have is flatness and monotony and if you just allow a little bit of that into the room then something beautifully unexpected can emerge and that's what we're saying in terms of having like a soccer game i'm a soccer fan and we've talked about soccer before not as much as of course i'd like to but the beauty <laughs> of a sport is that you have a playing field with clearly delineated rules in which never before seen action plays can take place. Right. And all kinds of things. No game is like any game before, but the rules are so strict. It's the same thing that we see in jazz. You can see it in music. You can see it in sports. You can see it in nature. You don't walk into a forest and say, why are the roots hanging from the sky? <laughs> All the trees, but, but no forest is like another, another forest. It, right. it, it's completely unique and authentic. And that's what we would want all of our children to be. And yet with all of these models happening all around us, we still want to have this contrived controlled result that ultimately backfires on us. Right. There's several reasons why that happens in terms of like, say funding where funding is tied to legislature. Um, and, and there isn't a lot of humor, you know, when you get to the administrative bodies of, of, of these uh, places. And so it's probably on some level reasonable to say, well, the school district that I work for doesn't, um, they don't really make humor a priority in any way. In fact, what's happening is that they are doubling down on control over all aspects of where I used to be able to make decisions as an instructor. And now the mischief in the class is not playful mischief. It is... You know, yeah, a six but... a six year old bringing a gun to school and shooting its uh -huh. teacher. Yeah, and that's indicative, right? When you don't have healthy conflict, you have violence. When you don't have healthy chaos, you have asinine chaos. 
Exactly. So uh, the, that humor part, I love what you said about like uh, a key to the heart, because when there's humor, it's like the instructor sticks the key in, but it's Coyote who turns it. Right. Once that happens, it's both an opening and a for chaos to have a place at the table and it's relationship building and it's trust building. And I don't mean that we should be operating from a point of intense sarcasm in, <laughs> in, the, in the way that it scars people, right? But we live in a world now where the word trauma is thrown around for any little thing. And we can't actually, you know, we have, we have people who are offended by anything that forces them to look at, at themselves in an honest way. And we have adults in the system who are just sort of silently saying, well, I don't want to lose my job. I guess I'll play along. You know, wonder when this will go away. And it's like, no. Um, what we really need is for is for people to say, you know what? This is bullshit. I'm not going to work here anymore. And we do have that. This is why we have a teacher shortage. It's like, why, why would any teacher want to go work in an environment like this? Uh, but who, you, you got to look at it and say, who are the teachers that are choosing not to work in it? And who are the people who are staying in it? And what we're getting is a more and more lopsided demographic of people that are in the system that are okay with the system and that will conform to the system and all of its rigidity and lack of chaos, lack of uh, freedom. And what's happening is that our, our children, the next generation is what suffers. And we as a culture will pay the price for that. You know, society enculturates the next generation for being successful within that society. And we can do that in an infinite number of ways. But we have to ask ourselves, is what we're doing creating a population that is going to be better than the generation that came before it or not? Wow. Wow. That And, and that, you know, that takes me back to very first conversations about any of this when when I watched that Changing Paradigms video of Ken Robinson and he's like, you know, we're educating for tomorrow um, and we have no idea what the economy or world politics are going to look like even five years from now, let alone 20 years from now when these kids are done. And that was true you know, 15 years ago when he was first talking and it's even more so now because the rate of the change is so quick. What more could we want than rapid adaptability and not only adaptability, but that our children would be forgers. They would be capable of forging what their education looks like. We're at that rapid state of recognizing that we need to follow where they are asking that education to go. And as soon as something like that is said, 
I can hear all of the alarm going off of, oh no, uh, here we are, the super free souls. Like if we're the, like some sort of democratic school here and here the, there's no rules. The kids come up with everything. And that's not even the case um, because there's a lot of study that goes into being able to free play well um, without an understanding of childhood development uh, from a physiological standpoint, let alone emotional, social, spiritual. Right. You can't be on a playground with, you know, a toddler. You have to be able to recognize their building blocks as the constructivist laid for. Right. But at the same time, you have to realize that they created a template within these, within which these, the theory manifests, but the actuality is, is always never before seen. And you have to be ready for the unpredictability but it, it is an informed readiness. And that is the study of the theory without it becoming a millstone anchor around your neck. Study the theory. We're not dismissing any of it. Study right. it, right. know it well, and then be ready for its new interpretation these theories that we're studying were written in different times they're still relevant but they require the critical thinking in which to allow them to play out in their new form so there is plenty of room for structure but there is a lot of need for conversations and that's what the, this podcast often is. It's a conversation, an ongoing, never-ending conversation of what things can look like. And that's how it's always been. But it's never within a framework of chaotic ideology. It's with study, with rigorous study. And then kind of putting a handbrake on all of that and saying, how can all of that inform what I'm about to go into. And that's the tenderness that I feel is needed. There's a huge responsibility that takes place, but in, in that responsibility requires the study and the preparation, but then it also has to have a certain degree of humility to recognize that even though I've learned all these things about human psychology and childhood and education, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. I've got to have a good body, like a nice community within on an ongoing basis to talk about what I'm seeing and, and figure out whether I'm hitting the mark or not. Yeah. I think when we, Consider the tools that exist now um, to help us as educators, as parents, as homeschool pod, learning pod, community leaders, or whatnot, 
even within work environments outside of that, um, you see a a trend that is in many ways, I think it's it, part of it's healthy in terms of, of adopting some of that psychology and saying, whoa, you know, like it's probably not a bad idea for us to develop uh, some emotional intelligence around the idea of interacting and how do we have conversations that are healthy and how how do we move forward as a as a body, whether that's a learning body or whether it's a, a work you know colleague environment body? We have these forms now that sort of help us identify, say, personality types. You know, it's became really popular like five years ago for everyone, whether it's corporate or whether it's uh, institutions like schools to have everyone, all the teachers will have, will take the the Myers-Briggs test. And then whatever your personality type is, uh, say you're an ISTP, (laughs) uh, then you put that on your name tag so that everyone can clearly pigeonhole you. (laughs) And create all the like micro tribes (laughs) at the school and in the work environment. I mean, like, oh, this is, I got, that's why I don't like you because you're a a thinking, judging, you know, jackass perception is, you know, (laughs) it's like, well, um, no, that's not the point of of that exercise. The the point of the exercise is to make us empathize more. Uh Um, and this is why even forms, uh, like spiral dynamics, that's trying to, this taking things on a more of a social evolutionary perspective and saying, you know, as people build societies, the societies go through these pretty predictable developmental stages. They, they have to figure out how, how they're going to do rule of law is that rule of law going to be very black and white and then once it's very black and white and you realize, oh, we can't do this. We can't do this for very long because it doesn't really exact justice because justice is more nuanced than that. And so then, okay, well then do you, how do you begin to soften up or look at those laws? And even like the conversations that are happening in our culture around policing are us having a existential crisis with what laws are and how they're enforced and what's to be expected of us as, as you know, like what is the social contract at this point? Um, and that's a healthy conversation to have. If you're having a conversation, <laughs> if you're just mm-hmm. saying, if you just have one group saying, no, this is how it's gotta be. Fuck all of you. You know, you're not going to like, and then like, no, you know, like I don't, really want my stuff to be stolen so when you just release all the people out of prison that are thieves like and they go steal uh, and theft rises by you know 20 points in your area well it's like that's a natural consequence of that decision and so who owns that right so it may seem like i'm off track but it's like all of this all of these tools are examples of how People use the tools, concretize them into a dogma or an ideology, and then it ceases to be an effective tool. And we have to have enough flexibility. We have to have enough elasticity within our interaction with the other people and the other communities and, and, the, and the diversity of just people. Even within a, a demographically homogenous community, you're going to have diversity. You have diversity of all these different things that are going on. And so diversity is, and the sensitivity to, to diversity is a great thing. But what we have right now is a culture that is so hopped up on, say, something like racism 
that you're not able to see the nuances that are actually playing out in the majority of people who are actually like, who on this earth is not mixed race? Who? Who? <laughs> who on the earth right. isn't a mixed race? It's uh-huh. like, who on the earth hasn't been conquered by someone else? So if, if you're going to build in empathy for the short-term history, uh, you got to start to account for the long-term history. And the long-term history says, we all come from slaves and we all come from masters. Uh, now, how do we work that out within our current situation? And that battle is happening every single day in the classroom. Because we're having this conversation of like, well, who is the master and who is the slave? And what are the kids supposed to do? And what is the adult supposed to do? And what are those roles? And within this podcast, within this, the the idea of holistic education that we are trying to say something about, but but more than anything, you know, create a space for that conversation to happen. It creates an open door. It creates an invitation for all of these things to be discussed. And we want to simultaneously create a muscle for resisting dogma. And one of the best ways to resist dogma is number one, through humor. And number two, through understanding and embracing the divine sense of chaos. Hmm. So I feel like I'm talking to someone who lives in a pretty frustrated world in which <laughs> that which you venerate is not venerated. Uh, how, how, how do you deal with that? Like it's around every single corner. And well, it's, it's literally on every single corner. I mean, like I, what, how do I feel when I'm driving down my street and I see a neighbor using roundup? Right. But spell that out. I mean, how is what you're talking about connected to what we've been talking about in this podcast? How does Roundup have anything to do with the lack of chaos that exists and that we are welcoming healthy chaos back into the classroom? What does Roundup have anything to do with that? Yeah. Well, what is Roundup other than a a chemical approach to Uh, a chemical tool for humans to have control and to be fascists over their little plot of land, their yard, right? So chaos in a yard, chaos in a a garden is what grows there that you didn't plant, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Like like what shows up and you're like, I don't know. I don't even know what this is. How did this get here? Right. Uh, Chaos is the, the seed that dropped in your garden because the bird that came to eat from the seeds that, of the plant that you actually planted, the bird had something else in its digestive system. It, it took a crap. And now that other thing is growing there because that other thing was food for it. And this is directly tangible and associative to what's happening in the classroom. Like when those seeds start to germinate in a classroom that we didn't plant, what do we do? Do we get out the um, the verbal roundup, or and we're like blah 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 blah, blah right? Like that's not the assignment, right? <laughs> or do we look at it and say, "Wow," do we look at it as a as a point of almost magic, where where you say, "I didn't plant this, but it's growing," 
And why is it growing? Why, why does this thing want to grow here? How did I create an environment that, that made this seed want to germinate here in my classroom with this behavior or this behavior, or this behavior? And it's not to say that, you know, like every time you get a new student dropped off in your classroom, it's going to change the whole environment. Just like every time you plant uh, a new plant in your garden, it's going to change the micro ecosystem in some way. It may be so subtle that you never notice unless you're watching it, but it'll change it. Everything is connected. Everything. So the mentality of the neighbor that's using Roundup is one of laziness. Uh, and I'm not saying they're not out there sweating, working on manicuring their yard really well every year. Um, <laughs> it's one of laziness because, you know, I go back to the conversation that we had on alternative currencies and the idea of using money as a way mm -hmm. to buy yourself out of having to work through, critically think through a problem and come up with a solution that actually benefits all instead of just benefits you. Yeah. And um, if anything, we always welcome dialogue after these podcasts with questions that might erupt. When I think about how long it has taken me to feel comfortable, and, and this, this is not coming from a place of I've arrived, but it does recognize a certain tenure of walking in a consideration of how chaos may actually be a sound <laughs> irony intended sound route <laughs> with which education can take place i have nothing but compassion for anyone feeling like going into the classroom today, tomorrow, next week, and having all of the heart in the world to just make a difference, make something come alive, mm -hmm. and yet feeling all of the constraints that you were mentioning before of legislation, of parents, of colleagues, of curriculum, and feeling like there is no way in the world that I can set anything free. <laughs> and, and, and I don't have an answer for some ghost um, situation. I don't even have answers for my own situations that I deal with as a parent tomorrow when my kids wake up, but I do have compassion and I do have a capacity and a willingness to listen and talk things through. And there has been nothing more helpful for me along the way than finding other individuals within which to talk about these things hash them out and then try something that has never been tried before. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of heart that is needed in going into the classrooms today with 
that right now I don't have. I am not a single fuck interested in walking into a classroom. I I was, but man, I tip my hat off to you know even the teachers I don't like uh, for just being there and going in and doing their part for loving their kids. But don't give up the critical thinking of what's taking place and what is possible and how we are asked right now to be the next evolution of education. The education no model that right now is being scrutinized podcast by podcast um, doesn't even have a hundred years of life. It is this thing (laughs) that showed up on the scene needs to be dismantled. And it is our job around the mic in the classroom as parents to say, this is not what education needs to look like. We need it to look like something different and we're suggesting a few things, but what we are sure about though, we may not know where we are going like some Thomas Merton prayer. We know where we should not be going and we know where we are and we should not be here. So let's get the fuck out of here and create something new. That's what we're saying. Yeah. You're highlighting the sentiment that for all the parents that we have as listeners, perhaps parents that are homeschooling, I mean, that was my uh, solution at one point. It was your solution at one point. Uh Um, I have as much empathy for the parents that have kids and and the parents that that are saying, you know, I have a limited window with which to make some critical decisions in, right? We talk about you know, talking about the timeline and this and that and generations and this. Well, if you're a parent, you're trying to come at this and you're you're saying, I need a solution now for a challenge that exists within the formative years of my child. And I I want to take advantage of all the learning that I have as a parent and make the best decisions for my child as possible. And you look around in your community and you say, well, what school do I send my child to? What school? And what if you look around and you're like, uh, well, the solution that I was hoping for doesn't exist. Uh, and highly likely. Right. It, and so then you get to this point where, where you say, well, well, what's my next step? Do I homeschool? Am I the type of person that might be a leader? Do I have, do I have the, the financial capacity, you know, within the home environment to leave a job and take a leadership role within the education of my kids at home? And maybe within, maybe for, for a few of the other neighbors or community members in the area. I think community learning pods are a great solution when, when and if, it, if it's available as an answer to this, to a lot of these questions, because then all of a sudden you have, you know, it's maybe getting to this point, you know, there was a lot of frustration and, and pushback on the system and realizing that the system is not going to change in the time that you need it to change. 
Um, but once you make that decision to say, yeah, I'm not doing it, then this that's inviting that chaos of yeah. the freedom that comes with that, right? And I like that invitation of chaos. I think that there's a certain muscle of defiance and taste for risk that is involved in being able to invite that chaos. Um, And I don't know, like you, you've taken huge risks. You took huge risks. Um, Denver, Colorado has recognizable standards and you pulled your kids out of that and threw them into the educational system of Esparza, Costa Rica. <laughs> and and against the um, advice of most egos that I knew at the time, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and let alone all your friends back home. Right. Um, but and family, blah, blah, blah. But what you started off this podcast, and I don't even know if we were recording you made mention of how there was this grounding point in which that seemingly chaotic moment of quote unquote miseducation seemed to be largely formative for your children. Frame that a little bit more now within the context of what we've been talking about, because I, I, and that was, there was a huge risk and I want you to frame that risk and you as an educator knew some things, but then you also knew that even though all the things that they could be getting and they weren't getting, they now have something that far outlives that which seemed so important and really isn't because of what they got, which was being overlooked perhaps at the time. You know, that that kind of sort of thing is just so beautiful to be able to see after the risk has subdued and we're like, oh, Mm -hmm. and we survived that tidal wave. Yeah, I mean, as far as framing the risk goes, the warnings that I got were that the public education system in Costa Rica is not at all up to the standards of what I would be expecting as a person coming from the United States. Um, that if you're going to do anything in Costa Rica, you send your child to a private school. Um, and those were supposed, you know, that those were the answer that within the system there it was like, either you're going to choose public school or a private school and that, um, you know, anyone with means and uh, a little bit of sense is going to choose private school over public school because of the depravities within the public school system. Um, now, our reason for, you know, taking our kids out of this country when they were in um, preschool and uh, so one was four and one, the other one was seven. So when we took them out of the country, the intention was actually to remove them from the system. So what I wanted was a clean break from the dangers that existed within the conventional system in the United States. 
what I didn't want was to get 15 or 20 years down the, down the road, having raised my kids and then realizing that they've just been indoctrinated into a machine that I had spent, you know, years of going to graduate school, realizing <laughs> that, that there were more problems than not in this system. And then there was the language aspect, right? It's like, for, so just from a uh, language aspect, what I wanted was for my kids to be able to play with other kids. And the best way to do that is to make sure that they know the local language so that they can play with other kids. And the best place to do that was the public schools because the private schools were all trying to teach English. Really shitty. They were doing a shitty job for the most part. But later on, when when we did say, okay, our, our kids have learned Spanish to a point, now we can provide them some of the other enrichment in the longer school day at the private school. By, by that time, they knew Spanish and um, everything that we knew about private school, which was, we're going to use your gringo kids as our as as our marketing tool and we're going to use them for their english and always possible within this environment to give our local kids a leg up in english because you know that's why so many people choose a private school i mean that's why there was a market for us right being illegal workers in costa rica <laughs> so, so yeah and eventually we we you know, exhausted that we said, okay, we got to the point where we said, okay, this, our kids have learned as much as they can learn, the longer they stay in this system. So you reached the threshold of that chaos, right? And, and, exactly. and then re-immersion back into stateside school yeah. welcomed a whole other slew of chaos. And, it, exactly. and it, that's what... I really want to define in terms of we often feel that chaos and a disruption to normalcy is a bad thing, and it can be. But if done under a close and careful thought process, it is the only route to something successful you mm -hmm. you have to be on an ongoing basis considering chaos if you're trying to aim for the baited success that exists that brick road is paved off go for it i want nothing to do with it and we know what that looks like. It, the, the Ivy League route to, you know, this and that and this and that. But life is so much more diverse than a successful career. And it's why we oftentimes see a academic success not paralleling familial success. Uh, senses of accomplishment, personal success. It's professional success right. towards mm -hmm. the society that needed you to fulfill that role. And that is such an impoverished pond stake in the whole game. Yeah. I'll expand on that a little bit more just to highlight a couple things that I 
that I heard from my children when they came back to the States. Mm. They came back in what grades did they leave? And in what grades did they come back? So they came back to the States when my oldest son was in fifth grade and my youngest son, so he must've been in his second grade, right? So when they came back, it wasn't until a couple of years later when uh, my older son, Paris, was entering, he was going into eighth grade and he said, this is the first year that I will have gone to the same school two years in a row. And I was like, what? Like, that's not true. And I had to think about it. And I was like, oh, that is 100% true. Like every year he switched schools. I'll be candid about this, that, that that caused a lack of healthy, consistent childhood friendships. He did have other friends in Costa Rica, but they tended to be older. And yeah. that, and they, the reason that they were older is because the older kids were trying to, uh, part of it was a maturity issue between cultures. And the other part was that um, often older kids wanted to practice their English with him. And so they ended up hanging out more. So that's who he connected with uh, rather than peers his own age. And that has added to absolutely been a part of uh, creating how he sees the world. But one of the, one of the details that he said coming back uh, after a couple of years, I believe he was in the first year of high school. He said, you know, here, I don't get it here. It's popular. Like you're popular. If you're depressed, the more depressed you are and the more that you're a victim of your environment or the more trauma you have, the more popular you are. Like that's a status symbol within this culture. And he's like, and, how old was it, he when he said that? Uh, he would have been 14. How long had he been back when he said that? Two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So, He's like, I don't see what everyone, everyone wants to complain about everything here, but they have no idea what they have. They don't know what they have. Like the facilities here are just amazing. The gyms are amazing. Yeah. The resources are amazing. He's like, everyone's complaining, but they have no idea how good life here is. And I felt really <laughs> proud, like proud right. but like you know i'm like you know that's something that I, that i hoped would be articulated you know at some point i was surprised that it happened so you know at such an early age and that he could actually see it identify it and, and, and articulate it and this that feeling was so powerful in him that it caused him to be very very selective about developing a friend group uh in high school because he wasn't willing to sacrifice his convictions and how he saw the world to be included in one group or another based on behaving in a way that he found to be repulsive, right? And it is repulsive, like on a, on a global scale, it's repulsive. Like you look at, around the world and you're like, you know, the, the, what happens in the US 
what what our problems are. The reason that we have a cliche called first world problems is because people make a big deal and they want to exalt this sort of trauma for having what other you know people in the other world and places in the world that don't have access to those resources you know are, are suffering without right so now we have these resources and and now it's a bad thing and i'm not saying there's there's other deeper psychological issues like you know well we live in a disposable culture we we do um when you go to christmas and your christmas spread you you know you go with your family you're like okay we're all going to have dinner together for thanksgiving or christmas or whatever this big occasion is and your family has chosen at that point to use plastic plates because it's because nobody wants to do dishes you know no one wants to do dishes that's a disposable culture and when you've hit that you have reached a point of degrading personal and familial morals to such a degree where you make an excuse for being disposable and my children are able to see that they see that because they see how they saw how resources were used in other places and how what happens like what happens when you live in a place where you don't have access to all of those resources and you have real plates, maybe plastic plates that gets used on a regular basis because you have ceramic floors. I mean, if you have a ceramic plate and you drop it on the floor, it's going to it's gonna break, right? Like those kind of things. We're just like, okay, well, you know, but you don't just throw it away, right? This, but, this, so. but, but you didn't, you didn't move to Costa Rica for them to learn that. Um, in part, I did. In, in part, it was hoping that we would stress our family to a point of being able to welcome a lifestyle that was more modest, that was more humilde. Right. Yeah, well, and, and I, I've never told you this, but I didn't do that. I moved from Costa Rica. I started my family in that place of humilde. Uh-huh. I didn't walk away from it. And I don't know if we will and what that would look like. Certainly our foundations have allowed us to be very happy with what we have in ways that I'm still baffled by. And I really love in my wife and my kids, Uh but you guys walked away from it you got on a plane and lived around the corner from my house in a very similar house structure which was the prefabricados with one papaya tree growing in the backyard in a those yards were like what like a meter and a half by three meters and it was just enough dirt to kind of like put your feet on at night with a rocking chair. <laughs> and yeah, it, but I will say that we had 14 papayas by the time we were kicked out of that house. <laughs> and I put every one of those papaya trees that we had growing that were, you know, by the time we were kicked out, each one of them was about four to six feet tall. I put every single one of those 
in the basket on my bike and ro- rode my bike down to studio one with these papaya trees coming out of my basket. <laughs> and all these people going, what the hell is that guy doing? You know, especially after the dude um, that was not asked, you know, after I came out one day because I heard this chopiador and there's this dude just like mowing down all of the tomato plants and all the, all of the plants that I had growing on that little tiny uh, yeah. yard in the front yard. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, oh, no, no, I'm helping you out. Right. And the, he was just going to show up and mow everything down and and hope that I'd throw him like, I don't know, two meals, five meals, something like that. And I was like, and I'm like, no, <laughs> like these are, this is my food, dude. Where is that guy coming from? Like he just showed up. He's just like some guy, some guy walking around that was just trying to make an extra couple bucks. And he thought that if he just went and did the work, you know, cause there, cause that on that house, there was no gate. There was, there wasn't any fencing against yeah, yeah. the street. Right. So you could walk straight up into the garden area and, and go to town. And he did. <laughs> he really did. Well, going back to what you were sharing, I think important for the conversation that we're having is that education is oftentimes scrunched into these very small (laughs) test tubes of math, English, maybe a few other things. And it's really interesting to frame that, to say that in light of, well, what was your time in Costa Rica? You know, what, what was the learning that they had, you know, Mm. like literacy, numeracy, like in this day and age, it's going to happen one way or another. It's going to happen. Your kids are going to learn to read or write, you know, but what we've got to be concerned about are the things that are not taking place. You know, you can give a title to things, but what I'm hearing is gratitude. Yeah. It's really hard to be thankful for that which comes really easy. You can't be thankful for things that come really easy. Gratitude comes from toil. And if we live in a culture in a society that strives for being toil ridden, (laughs) then then what you're also asking for is a society that doesn't have gratitude and a society that doesn't have gratitude ends up with entitlement and entitlement ends up with violence. Yep. That is not only well said, it's a good place to wrap up this installment. I want to thank our listeners for sticking with us through uh, this conversation and all of our conversations. Um, Anyone has some ideas or some questions that they want to throw out our way to force us to think about uh, some different perspectives, we would welcome that. Uh, Send your queries or your suggestions to future at originative.org. And we will uh, hit this again next week. And in the meantime, I am Ron Green one of your hosts and i am blue scabby 
This is the Origins podcast put out by Origin Eve. You can check us out on originative.org. We will be here. Love you. Good night.